Good morning. My name's Dustin, and I'm a part of the team here at Hope City. I don't know if you've seen this, but recently the government's been working on a UK-wide emergency alert system. This service, expected to launch this year, will send an alert to every mobile phone in the UK to warn you if there's a danger to life nearby. How do you think you would have reacted if, at 2 a.m. this morning, you received an alert, your life is in danger, flee the country at once? Would you grab a few things and run out the door? Would you head to social media to see, is this really something that's going on? Or like me, would you probably just ignore it, assuming some kind of nonsense had happened? Having lived in places like Scotland my entire life, this sort of thing seems impossible. For most of us, it's not the type of world that we live in, even though it's a reality for so many people in the world and so many people now living in Edinburgh, right? But that's the kind of world we're going to enter into this morning. We're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. It's Matthew's telling the good news about Jesus Christ. So far, we've heard the news about Jesus' birth, that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, the father of the Jews, and that he's a descendant of David, widely considered Israel's greatest king. We heard about his miraculous birth to the Virgin Mary and a Magi coming to worship this baby born king of the Jews. Let's pick up the story where we left off in Matthew chapter 2, verse 12, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. I'm going to invite Gabriella up to read. Uh, verse 12 is a bit unclear without the context of the first 11 verses, so what it's saying is uh, it's describing the Magi getting this news and fleeing the country. Uh, you'll find it on page 966 in the Blue Church Bibles. Returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave others, sorry, gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called, Naz called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Thanks, Gabriella. 
Just before Christmas, if you were with us, Pat shared about the Magi visiting and worshiping Jesus. He shared about Herod's response to the news, that he was disturbed by the Magi's visit. What we know about Herod, both from the Bible and from sources outside the Bible, is that he was a man desperate to hold on to power. He asked the Magi to tell him where this baby was, and that's where we pick up the story this morning. Just as the Magi exit, the Magi were warned in a dream, presumably a dream given by God, to return home a different way so that they wouldn't run into Herod and his men. Just after they left, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. So if you're keeping track, that's two dreams already. And Joseph was told to get out of Bethlehem and escape to Egypt. Notice how obedient Joseph is to the angel's commands here. He doesn't take time to think it over. He got up, grabbed Jesus and Mary, and he took off. Matthew even tells us that this happened during the night. Now, that might not seem like that big of a deal. Who hasn't taken a 4 a.m. trip to the airport? But imagine with me the scene for a moment. It's the middle of the night. Joseph turns frantically to Mary. Wake up, wake up, Mary. We have to run. We've got to go to Egypt. Now, not only had Mary been learning on the job how to be a new mother, caring for a baby, an unexpected baby at that, but she must have been exhausted from hosting these magi. I've never hosted dignitaries, but I can't imagine the, the pressure that would have come by these type of guests coming and staying in your home. These were special guests. Joseph and Mary would have worked hard to make them feel welcome, cooking them meals, treating them like family. They probably would have stayed for days. I can't even imagine how my wife, Katie, might respond if I woke her up in these circumstances, claiming to be told in a dream that we have to flee to another country on a moment's notice. Not to mention, in the Roman Empire at this time, and really throughout most of human history, traveling at night was something you simply didn't do. It was exceptional, far more dangerous than traveling during the day. You can imagine that Joseph and Mary and Jesus would have been an easy target for someone looking to do something nefarious, especially carrying such precious cargo, cargo, a young child and pockets full of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And let's not forget that Jesus is still a baby here. While he probably wasn't a newborn at this point, he's probably somewhere between a few months and a year old. I'm sure any of our sleep-deprived parents would tell you the last thing that they would want to do is wake up their child in the middle of the night for a ride on a donkey. Parents, imagine your baby in the middle of the night trying to keep him quiet on these dangerous roads in the middle of the, of the night. Surely this is a bad idea. But Joseph doesn't question God for a second. He does exactly what the angel commands, trusting God in the process. It's easy, easy to see, isn't it, why God chose such a faithful father in Joseph to be the earthly father of Jesus. So the royal family, so to speak, heads down to Egypt. This wouldn't have been a short trip, at least 150 miles, a week-long journey at best. At this point, they presumably set up a life for themselves in Egypt. They become refugees in a foreign land. It's hard to imagine that this was the life that Joseph and Mary had dreamed of when they became engaged. On the run, fearing for their lives and the life of their son, strangers in a foreign land, not to mention the whispers that were probably going on about how this baby was really conceived. Yet God has clearly provided for them, warning them of danger, and the gift from the Magi probably helped a bit as well. 
At this point in Matthew's telling, we get the first of three fulfillments. In verse 15, it says, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Passages like this one help us see why it's so important to engage with the entire Bible. As Joe and Kat mentioned, to read the Bible on our own or in groups, to see the big picture. Thankfully, we don't have to have the entire Bible memorized to know what Matthew's talking about here. If you look at the end of verse 15, you'll see a small C, which then, when you go to the bottom of the page, will explain that this is a quote from Hosea 11, verse 1. Hosea is pointing back to to the exodus of God's people out of the land of Egypt. If you're unfamiliar with the exodus story, then you really should join us tonight at 5 p.m. It's an important part of our story as God's people. But here's the way-too-quick overview. God made a promise to Abraham and his descendants to give them a land, a land often called the promised land. But Abraham's descendants, known as Israel, found themselves living in Egypt, where they became slaves. God sent Moses to deliver them from slavery in Egypt so that they might go to this promised land. Matthew really wants us to see the parallels between Jesus' story and the Exodus. In Exodus, the Pharaoh was afraid the Israelites might take away his power, much like Herod did in our story. So the Pharaoh began to oppress the Israelites and eventually ordered every Israelite baby boy to be killed upon birth. However, Moses was able to miraculously be saved from being killed. And in Exodus, God's people have a quick and dramatic escape in the middle of the night, just like Joseph, Mary, and Jesus here. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is going to be the the deliverer for God's people. Or as Matthew puts it in chapter 1, the one who will save God's people from their sins. But Matthew also wants us to see that Jesus is more than a deliverer. Jesus is God's son. Just as God called his son, the people of Israel, out of Egypt, so too has he called his son, Jesus, out of Egypt. Matthew is going to show us through the rest of his gospel what it really means that Jesus is the son of God. By putting Jesus in the place of Israel, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the true Israel. Everything that Israel was meant to be, Jesus has been. And where Israel fell short through disobedience, Jesus, through perfect obedience, will fulfill God's promises to Israel. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the one who fulfills these promises. Like the promise to Abraham to be a blessing to all peoples. And it's through Jesus that God will establish a kingdom that will last forever. And through Jesus, God will create a new covenant with his people. And it's through Jesus that the ultimate sacrifice for forgiveness of sins will be made, fulfilling once and for all the way for God's people to be in right relationship with him. Matthew's giving us the lens by which to view Jesus right from the very start, right from the beginning of his gospel. And as we walk through the rest of the book, we'll see how Jesus fulfills all these things. Okay, back to our story. Herod, unsurprisingly, did not take this news well. He was furious. And remember, Herod's a man who's desperate to hang on to power. We see that desperation here. But it's also well accounted for in other sources outside the Bible. In fact, we know that Herod had his three oldest sons killed because he was afraid they would take his power. He had an entire royal family of Hasmoneans, including his wife, killed because he was afraid they might take his power. And of course we have what happens here, where he gave orders to kill 
all the boys in Bethlehem, two years old and under. For context, Bethlehem was a small town, so the number of boys two and under would have been less than 20, probably even less than than 10. But even with that context, this is a hard verse to read, isn't it? It's a a hard talk, if I'm being honest. I've really struggled with this verse over the past few weeks as I've been preparing to talk about this passage. I found it particularly distressing as a father of a son and as someone whose wife is pregnant with a second son who, God willing, will be born in April. This is a brutal scene. This is an evil act done by an evil man. There's no other way of putting it. And I think one of the things that makes it so distressing for me is that it happens in the midst of one of the most beautiful moments in human history. The God of the universe has just come to earth, taking the form of a human baby. It's a moment that should and does inspire worship. Yet it's also a moment that leads to this evil act in which innocent babies are killed. Matthew invites us to look upon this glorious moment of Jesus' birth while also reminding us of the broken world that Jesus entered into. It's beauty and it's brokenness. I found myself reading this passage wanting to rejoice and celebrate Jesus' birth and his escape from the hand of evil while simultaneously mourning the loss of so many families. It reminds me of what Leonard Cohen once said, it's a cold and unbroken hallelujah. It's this moment that Matthew gives us the second of three fulfillments in verse 18. A voice is heard from Mama, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because there are no more. You'll see looking at the footnote that this is a quote from Jeremiah 31, 15. Rachel is an important figure in the Old Testament and in the history of Israel. She's the wife of Jacob and the mother of Joseph, who's sold into slavery in Egypt, and who later saves his family from a famine. Rachel's one of the chief matriarchs of the Jewish people. As these boys in Bethlehem are killed at the hand of Herod, their mother Rachel mourns their loss. This isn't just a footnote in the story of Jesus' birth. It's a major irony. It's a tragedy worth mourning in the midst of one of the greatest moments of hope in the Christian story, there's tragedy and brokenness. And I think Matthew wants to make sure that we see that. But there's also the larger context that Matthew invites us to see in this passage by quoting from Jeremiah. What's going on in Jeremiah is that God's people have been defeated by Babylon, a powerful enemy nation, and they're being carried away to live in a foreign country in exile. And in this moment, there's real fear that God's people would be defeated forever. That's what Rachel's fear here is, that God's people are no more. And if God's people are defeated, if Israel is gone, then so too are all the promises that God made to Israel. And the same thing happens here in Jesus' story. Evil, through Herod, sought to destroy God's purposes to bring salvation to all people. The stakes here are gargantuan. If Jesus is killed here, all hope is lost. But God provides an escape for Jesus so that he might fulfill God's purposes and promises. Matthew continues his account of Jesus' birth with a third dream. 
an angel appears to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, get the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. What does Joseph do upon hearing this? He does exactly what the angel told him, word for word. And he receives another dream, the fourth one, the final one of our passage. Fearing, fearing Herod's son would seek to kill Jesus, Joseph moved the family to Galilee, where they settled into a small town called Nazareth. Nazareth. This leads to our third and final fulfillment in verse 23, that he would be called a Nazarene. As I've studied this passage, I can't seem to get past what a strange ending this is to the story of Jesus' birth. The Christmas story. This section we've zeroed in on today is really just the final piece in a larger story Matthew's telling in the first two chapters. It's the story of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the chief patriarch of the Jewish people. It's the story of a descendant of David, the greatest king in Israel's history, being born king of the Jews. Not only is this baby born a king, but he's born through the Holy Spirit as the Messiah. He was to be named Jesus because he would save people from their sins. And he'd be known as Emmanuel because he is God with us. And it's not like this all went unnoticed. Magi traveled from afar just to worship this baby boy. I know most of us have heard this story all too many times. But imagine with me you're hearing this for the very first time. What do you expect might happen next? Me? I'd expect this worship to continue. This is the Messiah, the promised Savior. This is God with us. This should be a story of triumph, of pomp, of circumstance. Why does the story play out this way? Why is the Messiah, the king, on the run, exiled to Egypt as a refugee before returning to a backwater town called Nazareth? Spoiler alert, uh, when we see Jesus next, he's going to be almost 30 years old. So that means the next part of his life is obscurity, unknown, not a big deal. That's surprising, isn't it? It's not the twist I would have expected if I was reading this for the first time. I would not have seen that coming. Why does it turn out this way? Well, I think perhaps the answer to that question lies in this final fulfillment statement. In verse 23, Matthew says, And he went and lived in the town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you're astute, you might have looked for the little letter next to this fulfillment where it says that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. And you'll notice it doesn't exist. That's because the Old Testament scripture uh, doesn't actually say exactly this message. Instead, I think what Matthew's doing is he's pointing to an idea that's present throughout the prophets and the writings of a lot of the prophets. And so to understand this idea, I think we need to know a little bit more about this place called Nazareth. Nazareth was a tiny town, maybe 400 people at most. It had no historical significance. Before this, Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Bible. It's unrelated to uh, the Nazarene stuff of Samson and others in the Old Testament. This isn't a place of great renown. In fact, it's the opposite. John, who's the author of another gospel about Jesus, records an interaction between two of Jesus' earliest disciples, which goes like this. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? 
Nathaniel laughed. Come and see, said Philip. Can anything good come from Nazareth? How can it be that the Messiah came from there? Being called a Nazarene would have been the equivalent of being called a nobody, someone of low standing. What I believe Matthew is pointing to is the many promises of the prophets of a Messiah that would be mocked, scorned, dismissed, and rejected. Passages like Isaiah 53, 3, which says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. This is the promised Messiah, the one born king of the Jews. The God, this is God's son who will fulfill the promises and purposes of God. How will he do it? By being rejected and despised. Paul, a later follower of Jesus, put it like this in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. Who, that is Jesus, being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in an in in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross therefore god has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Matthew wants to make sure that we know that this is all a part of God's plan. In this passage, evil through Herod sought to destroy Jesus and thereby destroy God's plans and purposes. And if we keep reading Matthew's gospel, we'll see evil try again and again to try and stop God's purposes. When it seems like Jesus is at his lowest point, Matthew wants us to remember that the prophets foretold a savior who would be rejected and who would suffer for God's people. And Matthew will go on to show us just how Jesus fulfills these promises through his perfect obedience. In these first two chapters, Matthew's doing more than telling the story of Jesus' birth. Matthew's giving us some of the keys to understand who Jesus truly is. Matthew wants to make sure that we see that Jesus is the son of God the son of God who will succeed where Israel failed. Jesus is the son of God who's born king, who will establish a good kingdom that will last forever. Like the Magi, we should come and bow before him at his feet to worship. But not only that, Jesus is Emmanuel, the with us God. And Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the savior who will deliver his people from their slavery to sin. And how does Jesus do all that? by walking the path laid out for him, the path of a Nazarene. God became a human, being born a baby in the midst of a world full of pain, suffering, and sorrow. Jesus becomes Emmanuel, the with us God, by entering into our pain, our suffering, and our brokenness. It's a beautiful brokenness, and it's worthy of our adoration and worship. And it's a beautiful brokenness that overcomes the plans of evil. And one day soon, we'll defeat evil once and for all. Jesus is the king who overcomes evil and fulfills the plans and purposes of God. 
by walking the path that they must take. Perhaps this morning you want to remain the king of your own life, to hold on to power, to live the life that you want. I know that's often how I feel. If that's you, I'd love to talk more about the joy that comes from bowing the knee to King Jesus, the one at whose feet one day every knee will bow to God. But if you're not quite there, stick around. Matthew's going to show us exactly the kind of kingdom that Jesus offers for those who follow him. And if you're a follower of Jesus, take a moment, ask yourself, are there parts of my life I haven't given over to Jesus yet? Perhaps you've heard us talk about this Jesus born to save his people from their sins, and you think, I don't really need saving. Again, I'd invite you to stick around, explore the book of Matthew, as Jesus shows us just how pervasive sin is in our lives, how it destroys everything that it touches. If you want to know more about the kind of freedom that's available at the feet of King Jesus, talk to a friend here you trust, or to myself or one of the other preachers. Or perhaps in this story, you identify most with the families left behind in Bethlehem. To be honest, that's who I identify most with in this passage. And why I found it so difficult. Because it reminds me of all the pain and suffering I've experienced. Maybe you feel like evil has won in your life. And that no one can understand your pain and suffering. I won't try to tell you that I can. But I believe Jesus, the Nazarene, who was rejected, despised, and ultimately killed for our sake, can. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us God. And if you're suffering, Jesus wants to be with you in your pain and sorrow. Bring your pain, your questions, your doubts to the feet of King Jesus. And if you haven't met Emmanuel, take the chance today to get to know the God who gives us hope in the midst of this broken world. Wherever you're at this morning, come to the feet of King Jesus but with us, God, who overcomes the plagues of evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you because you are the victorious God. You overcome the plans and purposes of evil. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to be born a human, born the king. We thank you that Jesus is Emmanuel, the with us God in the midst of our broken world and our personal brokenness. And we thank you that no matter where we are, you desire to be right there with us. Help us see King Jesus clearly this morning. Show us how to bow down at Jesus' feet. We ask your Holy Spirit to open our eyes where we've fallen short. And we ask your Spirit to remind us of the grace that you freely give when you do. In Jesus' name.